Hey, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, if we, uh, if we sang those words, or if we just read those words, uh, I hope we thought about those words because they were, they were calling us to surrender. And that's ultimately what you call us uh, to, uh, to surrender our life to you. Often, a lot of us find that very difficult to do. Uh, and we do so because of a, really a lack of trust. Uh, we, we have a lack of trust uh, that we know best. Uh, and we don't trust you that uh, you have the best plans laid out for us. Uh, so I pray that more people in this community uh, would, would surrender, uh, would lay down their life, lay down things that hold us back, uh, but in doing so, lay down their life and, uh, and go uh, to neighbors and nations uh, for you. I pray that you would convict us of that in our heart and really instill it in our heart so that it sometimes has to be a daily Surrender a daily laying down. That may be of our desires, uh, of our of our will, of our ego, uh, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our churches, at our work, uh, for you. So I pray in this Lent season that we would surrender more, and that in surrendering more we would trust you more. That you have the best laid out plans, and they are laid out for our lives. I pray in Jesus' name who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, thank you all. Y'all can have a seat. Thanks, as always, to our worship team for leading us uh, in worship and in reflection. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We will... We will read a familiar passage, as we did last week, familiar in that it is the Garden of Gethsemane, and what was going on, what was going down there in Matthew's account of the Garden. Uh, As we've said, uh, we're in the season of Lent. Uh, What is Lent? It's not just giving up something or a habit, although... That can certainly be the case, particularly uh, if that holds you back in your life, in your walk with Christ. But for centuries, Lent has been a historic season where Christians intentionally tried uh, to move closer, to grow closer to the Lord. Uh, The key word there is intentionally, uh, to think about it, uh, to act it out, to say, I need to grow closer to the Lord, I need to implement some things uh, in my life uh, to grow closer to Him. It's also, and to use that word intentional and thinking, again, thinking about what does the death of Jesus mean? And and really, that's kind of the, uh, I guess, the the overarching 
question of what I'm trying to communicate and teach through Lent. What does the death of Jesus mean? Uh, It really means uh, what the title of this whole sermon series would be, uh, which is called The Last Dark Night. The death of Jesus really means that that night before his death was really a, a cosmic, the last dark night, because pre-Jesus' death, the powers of sin, the powers of the devil, really felt like they had control in the world and in your life. But with his death, what he has done is he's defeated those for us. And often, I'll say this, often many Christians just don't really get that. And I'll say this, I didn't really get it for for years, okay? I say many Christians didn't get that. We believe, and there's so much grace that's given to us, you just have to believe, have simple faith. Yes. But we don't always know, like, what Jesus did, what he accomplished on the cross for us, for you. So that's that's what we're getting into. What does the death of Jesus mean? For you. It really gives freedom. Uh, practically, it means that you should be able to walk, whether it's in school as a student, or at work, or at church, or in family, with your head held high, and have what I call a serene confidence, not because of what you've done or the gifts God's given you. And all of you have multiple gifts, but because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you personally. Uh, that's what the death of, of Christ means. So we want to look into this. And I, again, I think that, that question, what does the death of Jesus mean? It's, it's really, really vital. If we want to grow closer to Jesus, if we want to grow deeper in our Christian faith, and I want to, okay, and I want you to. So last week, you know, we're starting this as the last dark night. We're just going through that night before the crucifixion. So last week we talked about the Last Supper. And really trying to break down what that means as we take communion just about uh, every week. And we'll do so today. And you'll be invited. Whether you're a member here or not, you're welcome to come forward and take communion. But today we move into Jesus in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane. So I'm going to read verse 36 through 46 of Matthew 26. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Uh, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, 
he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Uh, so again, for, for many Christians, this is a, a well-known passage or story, Jesus in the Garden. Uh, many, uh, many people smarter than me really think that this is kind of the, the key time or hour of Christ's suffering, more so even uh, than on the cross. That this is where, and as we read, you can see this, that like the decision was made, okay? Because Jesus was wrestling here. Uh, and you see the humanness of Jesus, uh, the, the lack of desire to go forward with what's going on. I mean, he asked the Lord three times, if this cup might pass from me. What's that cup? Uh, we'll get into that. Uh, you see his loneliness. Uh, if any of you are going through suffering uh, or have gone through suffering, uh, and all of, us have, all of us have at some point, we don't want to be alone. And here, the humanness of Jesus, like, he wanted, he wanted the, the three in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He's like, come with me a little further and stay awake with me. And they, uh, as many of us do, uh, they failed him, and they went to sleep. So what does this mean? I, I, want, to, I want to focus on three questions uh, that, I'll, that I'll answer in, in a brief time, okay? But... Why did Jesus have to go through so much suffering? Okay, why so much suffering? Why did it start right then? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but you think, okay, the suffering of Jesus, you know, maybe when he began to be scourged and the crown of thorns and the cross, I mean, that physical pain. No, the suffering has started now. Why did it have to start now? Why so much? Why did it have to start now? And then what does all that mean for us today? What does that mean for us? So first, why so much? Why did he have to undergo so much suffering? So if you go back to verse 36, where we began, you know, it says Jesus came to Gethsemane, uh, which, which literally means like a, uh, Gethsemane translates like a wine press, okay? So they would take the fruit and, and press it. So they started at the outside, and they started going in. And Jesus said, hey, I want to take... Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and go further in. And then, uh, I love this, these two words, that he began. Something, something began, okay? Something started there as he was moving into the garden. I don't know if you ever really thought about it like this. I mean, before his last supper, he was in community with his disciples. They moved, they're walking, but as he's going into the garden, something started which is, what was it that started? Well, it said he began to be sorrowful, uh, troubled. And, and look at his words. I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Uh, in Luke, and we're not reading Luke and Matthew. I mean, Luke, he was a physician. And some of you doctors are. But he, uh, Luke said, you know, he began to sweat blood. Which is, and I don't want you doctors to correct me out there, but I've read and some biblical commentaries talk about that that is highly possible when you're under extreme stress and duress. Okay? So Christ is, 
He's deeply grieved. He says, to the point of death, something began to like come, come down on Jesus. You know what's interesting? He was, he, it was nothing new, by the way. Jesus knew he was going to die. I mean, that was the whole purpose he talked about for coming in, okay? And that was his purpose, to die. He came not just to live, not just to rise again, which those are the two things we like to focus on, the model and example of Jesus and his resurrection. But the point was he came to die, okay? So he knew that was going to happen. So this is like nothing new. And what's interesting is, so he's moving to death, and there are probably, through the centuries, hundreds and hundreds, okay? Maybe thousands of Christian martyrs. A martyr would be someone who died for their faith. Who died, hear me on this, who died uh, much better than Jesus. Like, what do you mean by that, died much better than Jesus? What I mean is like, they rejoiced in being able to give their physical life for Christ and his church. Rejoiced. Uh, I use an example. We are doing a, a small group on uh, Sunday mornings. Y'all have heard me talk about this. And, you know, I, I use this example in the group, too. Uh, my wife and I had, had the blessing and the privilege of being in Oxford, the other Oxford, uh, England, okay, uh, a few months ago. And at the, uh, at the entrance of the town is a statue of two men, uh, Hugh Latimer uh, and Nicholas Ridley. And y'all might not know him, but in the, uh, and I don't know my history uh, this well, but I think in the 16th century, they were working, they were pushing, they were trying to get the Bible translated into English. And the church at that time wanted it to stay in either its original language or Latin so the priests could have control over the common folks and say, well, this is what it means and you can't read that language. So these guys were pushing for the Bible to be translated into English. And another guy, George Tyndale. But Latimer and Ridley were both burned at stake there in the, uh, the beginning or maybe the center of the town of Oxford. Burned at the stake. So now there's a statue on them, and there's a quote from them, and it's Latimer telling Ridley, saying, Do not weep tears, Ridley, because on this day we will light such a torch uh, in England that it will never be put out. Uh, say that like, you know, great kind of pride for what they were doing, uh, dying. And that's very unlike uh, Jesus' responses uh, here, uh, deeply grieved to the point of death. And that's, that's one example. I mean, you have, uh, I mean, from the early church uh, being ready to give their life, go to death to uh, Christians even in the 20th century. I've got a book I'm about to, and I, by the way, I would hi- if you want a good Lenten devotion, I don't normally recommend books, but I would recommend this book for Lent. I'm reading it as a Lenten devotion. It's called The Cross of Christ. And it is all about the cross of Christ. And he actually uses many more examples, uh, written by a guy named John Stott, uses many more examples of this case of, of martyrs who died in a even a happy position. And here's Christ who's... Again, his words, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Why? What's this difference here? What began? 
And the key is, and this book goes into it, so I'm definitely stealing here, but this cup, because he says it several times, take this cup from me. Take the, what's the cup? Could have used other words. Well, in, in the Old Testament, the cup, and actually in, in Middle Eastern times, and it, it grew to this, this cup was known to be uh, God's punishment, okay? Uh, and it even moved to mean like you would drink a cup, executioners, uh, for some of you historians, Socrates was executed this way, he drank a cup of poison, okay? So the cup was God's justice on those who deserved it. And it's used over and over, and, and this book highlights it. It's not going to be up on screen, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of verses if you take notes, if this is, this is your thing. But Ezekiel 23, verses 32 through 34, says, You will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. This is, is a cup of Ruin and desolation, the cup for your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. In Psalms, Psalms 35, in the hand of the Lord is a cup. He pours it out on all the wicked of the earth, and they drink it down to its very dregs. Jeremiah 25, God's hand. There's a cup filled with the wine of his wrath to make all nations uh, to whom was sent to drink it. Even in the New Testament, Revelation, chapter 14. The wicked will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Uh, those are a couple verses. I was really convicted about how they, they tie in uh, this cup. What is Jesus talking about with the cup? It is, it is the cup of God's wrath uh, for, get this, all human evil, human sin, before and since, okay? Now, we don't like that, uh, that notion of wrath, okay? But if we want the grace of God, this, this is, okay, biblically, from a basic Christian understanding, this is how there's so much grace for you. It's not about what you do. It's about belief. This is how someone approaching death, nearing death, may have lived a vile life, can receive God's grace. Because the justice happened in and through Christ. The wrath of God for all human evil, all human sin, before and since, was coming down on Jesus. This is what was beginning. A lot of commentators have, man, they've written so much about this passage. That's why they think it's the key, really the key passage of his of his. Walk to death. It's where he accepted. It's like, okay, I'm going to take all, imagine all God's justice, wrath, for all that, well, I've ever done, you've ever done, before or since. Why do you have grace when God's perfect? Because it came down on himself, on God. And here, some people have called it like this. It was, you know, Jesus, who had lived forever and ever and does live forever and ever, only for, for God, for his Father, for the Trinity, okay? Only live for that in relationship with him. And here, what is God's wrath is to be ultimately, ultimately to say, I'm going to take it. And he looked to the Father, and now there was, there was nothing there. 
Can you imagine that? Not have, this, is what, this is why he was so grieved to the point of death. He said, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take the separation for, for a time for you. You know, do you, do you, you know, I asked this of myself as I was thinking about this. Do I love Jesus? You know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible. To, do I love him? Do I love him? Well, yeah, Tracy talked about up here singing, you know, it's not just to put down some things, it's to be more like Jesus. I would say, you know, you probably admire people. You've probably grown up admiring people. Maybe some of you admire folks, maybe rock stars, movie stars. I, I used to do that. You know, you admire somebody, you're like, I want to be like them. Do I admire Jesus? Do I adore Jesus? The more you adore him, the more you will be like him. The more you admire him, the more you'll be like him. So the cup here, he was taking, he was taking the full wrath of God for all, I mean, you can't imagine all the human evil, all the human wickedness, all the human sin for all time was coming down on Jesus so that you and I could have grace at any moment. We love the grace part, but we got to, why the grace? This is why. And it is. It gets into the nitty-gritty of what does Jesus' death mean? Now, let me go uh, a step further. Why did it start right then? Okay? Because you can think, well, yeah, I get that, but why did it have to start right then? Because he's about to go through, let's say this is maybe midnight, maybe 10, 11, I don't know, but, you know, definitely he's about to go through about a 12 to 14-hour period of, of hell. I mean, like, literal, spiritual hell. Why not start now? Couldn't it, you know, couldn't it be like, I don't know, 9 to 3, you know, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Friday when he's on the cross? Why do you have to start now? What's, what's going on here? God is, uh, most people believe that it starts now because God is showing us uh, his, his example, okay? The example of Christ. How do we see that example? Again, why is the suffering? Why is it beginning now? Well, first off, the key is that, that humanness of Jesus, okay? The humanness of Jesus, he wanted people to hang around with him. He wanted Peter and James and John, like, stay awake, please. You ever had, and I know we said that was the last dark night, but many of us have had, like, dark nights of the soul. You ever said, hey, just stay awake with me? You ever had that feeling? We talked about married couples, and not all of us here are married, but, you know, you're just like, just stay up with me a little bit longer. You ever had people fall asleep on you? Okay. I'm not saying I do, but I have fallen asleep on folks, okay? You ever fallen asleep on somebody? It's, just, it's really a beautiful picture. Jesus said, man, just stay awake with me. And they don't. And he asks them, I believe, uh, three times. I'm not good at math. Three times, just stay awake, and, and they don't. Why is it starting now? Well, you ever, you ever notice that it's tougher to obey God when you're like, you just... You don't have to read into it, but you can. You ever notice it's tougher to obey God when you're like alone and in the dark? You know, nobody's watching. We've talked about that here preaching. You know, everybody's kind of got their dark closets. And, and we'll go out into the world or, or maybe the rest of our house and we'll put on, you know, the good face or the good Christian face. In our dark closet. And we're alone. Nobody's watching. What do we do? Do we obey God? So many folks who have thought and talked about this passage, and I would say I believe this. God is giving us the perfect example. You know, Jesus wasn't just a a dying Savior here. He was a doing Savior. He was like, okay, nobody's around. Nobody's 
Uh, nobody's seeing me. He's going to perfectly obey. It's a lot harder. And you've got you to gotta hand it to Jesus here. You know? He is perfectly obeying. Nobody's watching. Okay? Why does it start now? He gives this example for us. Again, what do we do uh, when no one's watching? Is there integrity in our life? And you know, integrity uh, really means, like the root word of it is an integral of one. So there's no difference from outside in the world to the outside rooms in our house and everybody's hanging out with us, family, kids, to that inner chamber, an inner chamber of our heart even, when nobody's watching. Integrity. Jesus was an active doing savior. He said, I'm going to obey you, God, just because I love you. And you know, interestingly, everywhere else in the Bible, when God says, obey me, and people did, he would say, obey me and live. Here he said, obey me and die. And Jesus, the perfect model for us in his, in his right living, in his righteousness, said, I'm going to obey you. And he's doing this while his buddies, his closest, are asleep. And it's, it's interesting to me. It's kind of like God, say, God may have said this to him, you know. It's like, you know, you're dying for the human race. That's, that's what is about to happen. You're dying for them. So anyone can have salvation at any time. And it's like, and look at them. You're dying for them. They're falling asleep on you. You know, it's your greatest hour in need. This is, and, and there's truth in it. This is, at least for me, at least I'll, I'll own it. This is the human race. They're probably going to fail us over and over again. And Jesus says, Yes, and, and I love them so much. And that's for you too. Because I know for me, I fail often. And I think there's great value and integrity uh, and serene confidence in admitting we want to be in an authentic place saying, yes, I fail. I don't just fail myself. I mean, that's fail my wife. I fail my Lord. And God's showing us here and now, I love you anyway. I died for you anyway. It's not, about, it's not about your success or failure. It's about that I love you. Many of you need to know that. Many of you who base your life on success and failure. So it starts then because he's showing us this, this example uh, for loving you, loving them, obeying God regardless. And, and, you know, a lot of folks miss this too in their Christian faith, okay? I'm going to use a big big word here, and you might, some of you might say, well, this is a little too deep. Well, this is like really important if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to grow as a Christian. It's called imputed righteousness. Impu- I, don't, I rarely use this word because it's very, it's kind of even hard to, it's hard to get because it's like, it, it, it's, it's so out of our, kind of out of our consciousness, out of our, our reasoning. Like we don't, it's not that we don't get it. We well, can get it. It's like many people don't accept it. What imputed righteousness is, okay, righteousness means right living, okay? Hear me on this. Jesus did everything right, okay? Let's say we do everything wrong. Let's say you do everything wrong. How do you get God's grace? How do you get salvation? Which grace is radical and grace is not reasonable. And I'm not here to give a reasonable talk. Nothing in the Bible is reasonable, especially not grace. How do you get God's grace? Because when God looks at you 
and everything you do wrong. He doesn't see everything you do wrong. He sees everything that Jesus did right. Okay? That's what that big theological word, imputed righteousness, means. We did a, uh, we did a, a, a model of this a couple years ago back. It's probably the best thing. We took a, a lot of things and set them on the table. You know, I think, you know, explicit sins, you know, think some alcohol or, you know, and, uh, just, not just, and not, I'm not saying having a drink is bad. I'm saying drunkenness is bad. But we did that, and a lot of explicit sins that people can live into, put them on the table, and then we cl- covered it with a white sheet. That is, that's really the definition of imputed righteousness. When God sees you, he sees Christ's perfect right living. What does that mean for you? It means that you should walk out of here with that phrase I use again, serene confidence. You should walk out of here with your head held high. Not because of the gifts God's given you, and he's given you those. Not because of your successes. Many of you had success because of what what Christ did for you. Because what he did for you. He was a doing savior too. So now, closing up. What does this mean? I'm going to invite you to communion. What does this mean? First, he is a model, okay? And that's not, that's something we hit on a lot. And it's not most important, but we got to address. He is a model. He's a model for loving those who fail you, his best buddies. He's a model for acting in love for those who disappoint you, for acting in love for those who fall asleep on you. He's a model for what we do in our dark, dark closets or in our dark rooms. What does he do? When nobody's looking, he obeys God. He's a model in prayer. He's a model in beautiful prayer, authentic prayer. Not just uh, the prayers we think we should state or say or to look good, but like deep prayers. Like, his prayers like, God, you know, if this cannot happen, please, you know, don't let it. But if, if this is the deal, you know, it's your will. It's a beautiful model for prayer. Authentic. I mean, I encourage you to say this prayer. I mean, com- conversing, having a conversation with God. God, I prefer this not, but if it's your will, I lay it down. I surrender. But I will say this. If, he's only, if Jesus is only a model for you, you're going to be dead in your sins, and you're not going to have salvation. Let me say that again, because you might not heard it. If Jesus is only a model for you, then you're going to remain dead in your sins, and you're probably, well, I mean, biblically, it'd say you're not going to be saved. So, what it means for us, he's also our substitute. And this is key, too. Jesus stood in our place on the cross. What does this mean? simple way of putting it is, he took what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. That is grace. That is Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. Going back, he takes... What everybody deserves. It's why, it's why the uh, Corey Ten Boone, I love this story. She was at a concentration camp, a Christian, survived it. She met one of the guards later in life who'd become a Christian. It is, was so hard, she said, for her to embrace him, to even shake her hand. She said, you know, I'm, I'm saved. I'm a child of God. That's how. That's how. Because God's justice has come down on Jesus. His wrath has come down on Jesus. Jesus has been the substitute. He has a model. He has a substitute. But the last thing is, is he your savior? We use that word a lot. It's good Christianese, Bible Belt rhetoric. He's a savior. 
by a question, is he truly your Savior? I used this little story last week. I may have to use it again. But if a guy and the couple I picked on last week is not here, but if a guy is courting, use that phrase, a girl, and the girl is not as interested and they're walking a beautiful country lane and there's a little stream or river flowing around and he's wanting to get her attention, and he says, well, I'm going to get her attention. I'm going to jump in the river. I'm going to drown myself to show her how much I love her. Uh, I would say, and you would probably say, that's stupid. Uh, the girl would probably say, that's stupid. You could have done a lot you know, different things to impress me, and we could have had a wonderful, loving life together. That is what many people think about Jesus dying for you and what the cross means. They're like, what do you mean by that? Because many folks say, well, yeah, he died for me because he loves me. The same thing. He didn't just die for you because he loved you. He died for you to save you. Because that's the difference. If the guy and the girl are, are walking down the country lane and, and the girl's life is threatened uh, by danger or by something that could kill her, and then the guy jumps in to save her life and he dies by saving her, yes, I think that would, I don't know, but I think that would impress the young lady a lot more. He died for you to save you. And some of you may be thinking, well, you may not be feeling that you really needed saving at all. That's a huge, huge problem to get people to grow as Christians. But when you get that I needed saving, I need saving. And the biblical fact and the truth, Christianity, is that he saved you. And he saved you on the cross. Then you begin to say like, I believe. Then you begin to say, I do not just admire but I adore him, and I love him. And the more you do that, not only the more will you obey him, but the more you'll be like him. So is he your savior? Or is your career your savior? Or your perfect family your savior? Or the potential perfect better half your savior? We all have saviors. The Bible is saying unreasonably, unapologetically, the only savior that will ever fill you and fulfill you. It's Christ our Lord. The Apostles' Creed is written because the only Savior that will ever truly comfort you, sustain you, remake you, is Christ our Lord. So therefore, we're going to move a time, and, I, and I, I'm going to invite you to take communion, but I'm also going to challenge you, not just today, but as we move to Easter, to lay down your life for Him. Like if, he's your, if, he, if he saves us, I think the right response, lay down your life to him. I'm going to use this story. I don't really talk about my baptism much. You probably never heard the story. But I got baptized in 1987. I was moving into seventh grade, okay? And to make, a, make, a, make it a short story, but I, uh, when I got baptized, I'll just say this. I remember very consciously still now the water coming over me, and I remember consciously in my mind saying, God, my life is yours now. Okay. I meant that. That was not like a rote. I didn't have to say it to anybody. You know, and obviously I don't have to say it to you, but I consciously in my mind, I go back to that. I go back to that very regularly, quite frankly. God, my life is now yours. I believe that is, I believe that is what, it, what it's about. And that doesn't mean you have to be a pastor or even though I think all Christians are missionaries, you have to go, you know, 
but living Christ in your life as a teacher, as an administrator, as a physician, as an artist, as an attorney, as a politician, as living Christ, laying it down. So I, I challenge you in Lent to lay down your life for him. That's kind of a Christian cliche too. You're like, well, how would I do that? Well, just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it down to grow more and learn more in your word for you. I'm going to lay it down to be more of a fabric of this community, this community, Bellwether Community Church, and the community it wants to reach for you. And I'm going to go more for you to neighbors and nations. Those are really our three values. But I believe it's also who Jesus wants every Christian to be, to grow, to be part of a fabric community, and to go out to neighbors and nations. I challenge you to lay your life down. Maybe today, that would be awesome. Through Lent, leading up to Easter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may we all, and maybe for the first time or again, lay our life down uh, for you. Not for this church particularly, uh, for, for your church and your kingdom and what you're doing on earth. I pray that. I pray that we'd know more. We'd know more what you've done for us, how you are our Savior. That that, that, that word, Savior, would really resonate, take root in our consciousness in our lives. And that you would continue your saving mercy your salvation of us uh, as we grow together. In Jesus' name, amen.